early days of my career, um, it feels really risky to invest first time out. Um, you think about, wow, what could really go wrong? Um, and that's fair enough. Uh, but we sort of have all this market history in the US that sort of tells us that over the long term, you're going to do well. Um, so what I've been telling people a lot of the time is sort of the first time that you get started investing, it makes the second and the third and the fourth time you put money in um, so much easier. So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to Money Talkers. This is your host, Cody Laughlin. I have Brian Dress here with me today. He is the Director of Research at Left Brain. It's a wealth management firm providing financial planning and investment advice. They currently service approximately 200 clients and manage over $167 million in assets. Uh, before joining Left Brain, he spent nearly a decade managing an independent portfolio of derivatives, focused mainly in the oil, gas, and commodities market, also in equities and fixed income. We talked about being a trader and those kinds of things as well. And so we're going to deep dive into uh, kind of the behind the scenes of investing and uh, and and also uh, the, some backlog things about the uh, stock market. And so I'm excited to hop in with this with you, Brian. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Cody. Good to be with you and your audience. Oh, I appreciate that, man. I uh, so let's get hop right in here. How did y'all come up with the name Left Brain? That's what I want to know first. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people are familiar with that sort of left brain, right brain concept. And, um, you know, the right brain controls sort of the artistic uh, side of you and the left brain uh, controls the analytical um, sort of sort of side of your brain. And uh, at Left Brain, we're very analytical about the way we approach investments. So I think it's a very apt uh, description of what we do, to be honest. So let's talk into that because I know you're the director of research, right? And so can you kind of tell us a little bit about like what you research? And then um, I want to start picking in some questions about how you do your research, like how is it applicable to people? So if you could kind of just explain what it is that you do research of. Sure. Like, uh, like you said, um, we are a wealth management business. And so uh, unusually for a firm of our size, we have a team of five analysts that I run. Uh, and so we're doing research on uh, individual stocks and bonds for our, um, for our clients' portfolios. Um, I would say that we're aggressively long-term oriented um, and sort of the way we look at investments is there's only a couple of reasons to sell an investment, especially as you're accumulating wealth over the time, uh, over your lifespan. Um, the first is this, uh, if the business changes. And the second is uh, if you find a better investment. Um, and so the research that we do is, um, focused on individual stocks and individual bonds. Uh, we basically look at a lot of high growth companies for the, for the stocks um, and look at a lot of high yield bonds for, for the bond side. Um, and so um, 
you know, with a lot of the passive investing you see out there, we sort of run the opposite direction um, and are very, uh, very active um, portfolio managers uh, and uh, security selectors. So as you talk about doing the high growth and high yield, um, is that a bit more on the risky side of it? Is that why you have the analysts um, dedicated specifically to it instead of just making recommendations based on whatever's got the newest headline? Yeah, you know, um, exactly. Like, of course, we could make headline investments, and uh, but we'd be in and out making changing our decisions all the time based on the narratives that are out there. Yeah. Um, we really are fundamental oriented. We're bottoms up type of type of shop. And so we're looking for world-class businesses, both for stocks and bonds. And so um, you really got to dig deep um, across the number of the characteristics that we look for in good investments uh, in order to make active security selections. Uh, otherwise it's just not, um, just not going to work. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of traits do you look for? Like I, I kind of kind of pull the, the uh, curtain back a little bit. So somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, I know about the stock market. Uh, yeah, I want high growth. Yeah, I want high yield. That's a, it's really good stuff, right? Everybody wants that. But like, how do you how do you start to determine those factors? So it's a little different between stocks and bonds. Um, and we kind of have dedicated analysts on both sides of it. But at the end of the day, um, we're looking for world class businesses uh, that have momentum. Um, both in their financials and their business, and also sort of some price momentum in the in the markets. Um, and there's a few characteristics that, especially in the high growth stock uh, side of things, that really tend to stick out for us. The first is accelerating revenue growth. Um, of course, you want to see growth in a stock. You want to see growth in sales. Um, but what we really look for um, is acceleration in that revenue growth, because it shows you that there's momentum in the business and something's happening. Um, you know, as we look in high growth stocks, not all of them are going to be profitable. Um, a lot of them are in early stages of their of their lives. And so um, you have to look for other ways to, to determine profitability and trajectory. Um, so we're always looking for some level of profit profitability, whether it be on free cash flow basis or some other metric. Um, so we're looking for expanding margins um, or profits. And at the end of the day as well, what we really want to see is an innovative business. And so there's a couple of things for that. Um, we're looking for companies that operate in markets that are growing. Um, so the reason for that is because if a market's growing, comp competition's a little bit less important. You know, if a, mar a market's growing at 50% per year, there's room for more than one company to do well. Um, so that gives us a little bit of margin of safety. And then also it's uh, sort of an innovative CEO or leadership team. Um, we really like companies that are uh, uh, run by the founders, um, because the reason for that is when you invest alongside a founder CEO, uh, there's an alignment of interest there. You know, when they do well, uh, when the company does well, they do well financially. Um, so we like the way that stacks up for us as well. So um, like I say, a lot of the time, um, it's not easy to invest, but it is sort of straightforward and simple. And we try to simplify things by just kind of looking at you know, four or five characteristics that really always stick out for us. Um, and that really helps us make decisions uh, for our clients. Do you find that the founders typically think longer term and not quarter to quarter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we appreciate that companies have to report quarter to quarter and that helps us learn about what's going on. Um, 
But the reality is you don't want to you don't want a business to be run that way. You don't want to invest in a business that's sort of thinking about how can we increase the profits for next quarter because they'll do all sorts of different uh, accounting tricks. Um, there's a number of ways that you can manip manipulate earnings from quarter to quarter. Um, and like you said, I think when a founder has all his money in a business, he's thinking about he or she is thinking about the long term and really sort of how to maximize this uh, for the next 10, 20, 40, 50 years. And for us, again, as being aggressively long-term oriented, uh, that really works well for us because we're thinking about things uh, completely in the same way. I, so I have a, a little bit of a um, like piece with that though. I, I believe there's probably a piece of once you've got the, the market, I don't know, market deceleration or if that's the right kind of term, but like, once you've got a once you've got the behemoth to be a certain point, it almost seems like though the founder needs to move in, move on, and, and let an operator step in. Does that make sense? Like, like I think about like Uber, or, but the, on the flip side of that, Lyft still I think Lyft still has the founder, right? So maybe it just was the wrong yes. founder, right? And um, so like, it, but I think yeah. about other some of the other businesses like that that have this ultra driver push, go 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 go, and then it's like okay, now you need the guy who's like, okay, now I got to come in and step in and operate this, you know, behemoth of a business to, to turn it into a, a profitable long-term solution. Yeah, I can speak to that um, because we, we specifically, you'll see us investing in technological firms a lot of the time. And so um, you'll see an engineering culture generally at the beginning of the lifespan of these type of companies. And so I guess my answer would be, it depends. Yeah. I think um, of like a WeWork, right? Like that guy was, yeah. like, he was a driver and he was dreaming so big and he talked to somebody with tons of deep pockets to back him. But at some point he just started splintering everywhere as a lot of even small business entrepreneurs do. We start doing shiny, shiny object syndrome instead of sticking to the core business. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've seen it happen both ways. Um, there's a company called ServiceNow that was started by a very much an engineering type of person. Um, and he knew his limitations. And so um, not, not, very, not very far down the line, um, they switched it up and moved over to someone that was more sort of an MBA type of guy uh, to run the business. And that served them well. But then you also have, uh, you know, companies like NVIDIA with uh, a CEO, yeah. Jensen Wong, that really... Um, he's an engineering minded guy, but also business minded. And so I think it's ideal to have someone like that continuing being at the helm because uh, he's really the soul of the business. Mm. And so as long as he has sort of a, a business mentality and sort of understands, hey, we've got to make uh, profit here, that's fine with us. But um, like you said, there are definitely situations where the innovator is not really a business mind. Um, and we definitely identify that and um, definitely keep that in mind. Well, that trap happens in, the, happens in the small business world too. You know, because you're technically sound and understanding of whatever business you're going into, you believe you can become an entrepreneur, but there are traits to that that you need to either A, learn or B, have. Like, you know, you've got to have very thick skin and be able to solve. Like, no painter wants to be an accountant. Right. And, but you have to do accounting to make sure your painting business doesn't go out of business. So I can yeah. see that kind of on the highest level where some of those guys are like, you know, I'm kind of an introvert engineer with a analytical brain. Like I think about, well, it, probably the most famous ones, Elon Musk, right? Like he doesn't spend his time being a CEO most of the time. He does kind of on the surface to be the face of things. But if you ever talk to the guy, he's like, nah, eight hours a day, I'm doing engineering. <laughs> you know yeah and that's that's what we we do like those types yeah. um 
and I'm sure he spends some time uh, with other C-level members of his team and talking about the yeah. business more than you sort of may recognize, but. Um, well, I think he's also working like 14 hours a day. So when I say he does eight hours a day yeah. engineering, he's not a normal dude. But, yeah, <laughs> but, running about four different companies at once. Yeah. yeah. But he's um, also surrounded himself with, a, with an amazing team because if he's able to do that, then he's been smart enough to realize, I don't like being the CFO. I don't like being the chief marketing guy. I don't like doing this. You guys bring it to me like, like Ford did. You know, yeah, couldn't build, couldn't, Ford couldn't build a car, but he built the biggest car business. You True. Know, kind of thing. And yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, we like, and especially like we talk about with tech, um, we like that engineering culture to to remain, right? Yeah. Um, so if it goes too far the other direction, sort of to the Stanford MBA type, taking care of it, uh, it can really go, um, you know, like Microsoft kind of had 15, 20 years there where they struggled because they had uh, kind of lost their engineering focus. Yeah. And then kind of got back to it. Uh, so this is a, kind of a counter example to what we were talking about. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Um, they were, they're almost a comeback story, right? Even though they've been one of the biggest companies on the planet, they were almost obsolete until they until they switched the business plan up, which was having somebody else come into it. But um, so let's talk about this. Right? Um, so when you uh, are looking into uh, how you handle your customers, um, I know kind of one of the things we talked offline a little bit is that you have a passion for the financial literacy side of this business, right? Um, what are you seeing when people come in? Uh, it, well, let me, let me preface this. By the time somebody gets to you guys, they've probably already had some sort of breakthrough realizing they don't know some things they need to get information from you, right? But like, right. what do you see that holds them back the most from seeking the information? I think just some people are so intimidated by the markets and stocks and all the rest of that. Um, and they're really good at what they do, uh, be they professional, are they a doctor or a lawyer or something else, business owner. Um, and so they want to stick to that and they'll come to us. You know, a lot of people are hobbyist investors, but a lot just don't want to do it, anything to do with that. Um, and I think what we try to do is, um, explain to them that the wealth management equation has sort of a minimal number of inputs. So it's how much do you save? It's how much do you uh, earn from return? And then it's what your goals are. And um, what we try to do is explain that that second prong, the investment investing part, um, we can use that to, to up their returns and um, really change what their goal set is. And um, again, I'm like the power of compounding uh, and the time value of money can really be useful for them um, if we get them in the right investments. And so um, we do a lot of referral business. And so a lot of the times we'll have people coming in like, you know, their friends have done well with us. And so that starts us off at a pretty um, good footing to explain things to them. But um, I really think people are intimidated by, uh, by investing and I think um, what they hear in the media doesn't really help either. Yeah. How do we, uh, how do we overcome that? And I specifically think about with young people. I think what I would tell people, younger people or people with children is um, the best thing you can do is just get started. Um, from my own point of view, uh, I've always been in, interested in investing. Um, I got started in trading. Um, I made a lot of mistakes with my long-term investments. And uh, one thing that I realized is looking back early days of my career, um, it feels really risky to invest first time out. 
Um, you think about, wow, what could really go wrong? Um, and that's fair enough. Uh, but we sort of have all this market history in the US that sort of tells us that over the long term, you're going to do well. Um, so what I've been telling people a lot of the time is sort of the first time that you get started investing, it makes the second and the third and the fourth time you put money in um, so much easier. Um, for instance, uh, I got to, I made some mistakes during the 2008, 2009 crisis time. Um, you know, it felt like the world was ending and uh, being invested in anything was a really d bad decision. Um, but I look back and I say, you know, actually what a, tr what an amazing opportunity it would have been to push all in there. And, um, so now then like when we had this trouble with, with the pandemic last year, um, and there was an opportunity to sort of add exposure to the market, it felt a lot easier because you sort of have that, um, well, that faith. feedback that, yeah. yeah, well, the faith, but the, <laughs> it's that feedback of sort of, okay, now I kind of understand, Hey, um, markets kind of fall apart for a few months at a time, uh, but they tend to come back, um, especially in the U.S. Yeah, what is it uh, Warren Buffett says where it's um, be uh, aggressive when others are fearful and fearful when others are aggressive, right? When the market's aggressive. I yeah, guess. I think that is such a smart comment, but like when you get into the world of investing, when it's actually about putting your money in, into the mix, um, it's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, emotions get involved. And that's why I say like the experience really helps because like when I back in 08, 09, uh, emotions were involved for me, uh, wasn't able to take advantage of the situation in the way I would, you know, if I knew what I know now. Um, and so in the markets, the only way to learn is experience. And so, um, you know, what I would tell parents is, hey, if you can get your kid to maybe buy um, you know, a couple of shares of stock for a couple hundred dollars. Um, it just gets them in the habit of, of learning about um, doing the research and um, going through market cycles. Um, even if you're 13 years old, um, I think it really helps to get started with yeah. a few hundred bucks or whatever. Um, because like I said, it's, it's experience and time is the only way that you're going to make better decisions. Well, that's one of the things I try to tell people that, you know, our kids may not be wealthy with money, but they're wealthy with time. And that's a different, there's two factors that going into going into building wealth, right? You got to have, if you have, you can have a lot of money and you can have a short amount of time, or if you can use a very little bit amount of money and have a very long amount of time, they ended up, they ended up in the same place. You know, it's a multiplier. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, th I think one of the things is like it, it, talking about that is that having experience of going up and down, it's almost like it's almost like riding a roller coaster or I don't even know, um, you know, uh, going out to cook dinner for somebody. Right. Like the first time you do it, you're probably going to be terrified, scared, loud, <laughs> excited. Right. But about the fifth time you ride the same roller coaster in the same day, like now, you know, what's coming. It's still still gets you going but it's not the same as the first time and so it takes a little if you if you can break that down i think bringing that that this is i would say it's it's simple to get at least involved there's ways to maximize and i think that's what you guys specialize in is is bringing that second part of the maximization but for me with with like you said with kids like just even getting started and talking about how do you value a company 
you know, what's a right. PE? Like, I mean, you, you know, you guys deep dive in a lot, you know, the balance sheets and everything else, but like just even saying, Hey man, what's a multiple. Right. I yeah. I, I agree. Um, what I would say the best way to get started from my point of view is choose a company that, you know, um, well, maybe you, you patronize that company or, um, you know, it's some other re for whatever reason, um, and then work backwards. Um, you go to the investor relations website of say Amazon, and there's so much information there. Um, you know, just go back and read the last couple of quarterly, uh, earnings calls and you start to get an understanding of, um, what they disclose to people mm. and kind of like understand the rhythm of how it works. Um, and I think you just do that for a couple of years, uh, you know, on a handful of companies, I think you'll start to kind of get a sense of, of how the markets work and um, kind of how we look at things too. I love that you opened up our conversation with, you should stay invested. And then one of your, your two criteria was uh, until something better comes along to invest in, <laughs> because when I was a kid, um, I actually had a stock account and, uh, and my main holding was Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I did great in it. Right. It was fantastic. I wrote it and I sold out of it and it was awesome. And I had, I turned my few hundred bucks into a few thousand dollars and whatever. And I had Blockbuster and Checkers Burgers because that's what I like to eat. So, uh, you know, it was, but it was, we went to Blockbuster all the time and I was like, these things are popping up everywhere. Like, you know, so you're, you're, it's, it's pretty funny how, um, but how, you know, time changes things, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that you say that. Cause you're saying you're kind of, you kind of did what I'm talking about is you knew those two businesses. And so, um, you had some basis, right. To begin yeah. with. And we used to get, um, but you have to, you used to have to get the, the stock prices out of the newspaper. Uh, sure. People listening to that, like, I just had to explain TV to my nine-year-old again, this past week we were on vacation. She was like, I want to watch that. I'm like, it's not on until 11. And she was like, I think it's not on until 11, <laughs> you know, it's about the fourth time this has happened with one of my kids where I have to like sit them down and explain television to them because they've right. never had it, you know, everything's on demand. And so same kind of thing. Like, uh, you know, I was investing in things that I knew, but you had to open the newspaper to see where the stock prices were. And so I used to do that like once a week, they'd have a financial page and I sure. would look and see track what if it was going up, going down, if I made money, if I lost money. And I think just doing that alone gave me, you know, a sense of, um, it just took the, it took the, the anxiety of thinking about putting money into something and getting money back, you know, that's totally right. Yeah. Like it's very easy. Like if I could trade a paper portfolio, meaning kind of like play money, uh, I'll make one type of decision, but if I go into the market and do it with real money, it's a totally different animal. Yeah. Um, so you used so, to be a stock trader though, right? Um, so, I used to be kind of like a futures trader. Yeah. Futures trader. So what is mm -hmm. a futures trader? What do they do? Um, so futures are sort of, um, a contract, uh, to buy or sell a commodity or something else, uh, at a given point in time. And, um, so the futures market up here in Chicago is, is very, uh, liquid, um, and very active. It's the largest so, one in the world, right? Exactly. Chicago, Chicago's where the, exactly. Future, where the commodity trading is, right? Exactly. And, uh, so you just kind of buy, uh, maybe buy an oil contract and sell it seconds minutes hours later um so it's a lot of in and out uh, really very short very short-term oriented trading um, so you're guessing whether the price of something's going to be up or down in the future whether that's a few seconds or a few months or whatever and and you're trying to you're trying to figure it out with all the inputs right 
Exactly. And <laughs> um, my experience of that is it makes it so hard to be long-term oriented yeah. Um, for like, like your outside, for your outside right? money. Yeah. Um, and I know people in the trading business that are still there um, and they don't, they don't invest in any stocks or anything like that. Um, I just can't keep the two thoughts in their mind at the same time. Um, and so I traded for almost 15 years, but uh, there's all so much automated trading now. It's very hard for humans to compete. And oh, so that's right. I, I didn't think about this. So all the algorithm trading things are, um, are now kind of just in and out that fast on them. Like Mike. Right. Cause we great. used to take, I used to take advantage of things I would see with my eye. And uh, when computers come into the mix, they can do that so much better than I can. So um, that made me think, how can I reorient my career? And so I was like, well, let's think about going the opposite long-term uh, investing. Was that a tough um, shift? It was, um, but I read a book called 100 to 1 in the Stock Market. It was written back in the early 70s. And it talked about all these stocks that went up 100 to 1 uh, back in the Depression. So um, it just opened my mind to the possibilities, right? Because um, when you're a short-term trader, you think, okay, well, I make a bunch of decisions um, and then pile the money up that way. Whereas uh, in long-term investing, all I got to do is find maybe three or five terrific ideas in my lifetime. Um, and it can do something unimaginable, um, with the nest egg. Right. <laughs> um, and so it seems like a whole lot less work too. Um, it's very, <laughs> very, um, very hard mentally, the trading in and out. Um, yeah. I'd so imagine. I kind of like the, yeah, I like this, uh, over it's a young man's game. So I kind of like, I like where I'm at now much better because, um, we could sort of control the inputs better. Um, I don't have to invest it. Like if I was trading oil, I always had to be either buying or selling oil um, so, with, with stocks. I can, you know, pick and choose my battles. Right. And uh, if I know a few really well, I can invest in those and, and do really well with that. I don't want to put you on the spot as like a recommendation of a stock, but let's uh, if, if a, for example of something that hits some of your guys's criteria and then walk me in through why it hits the criteria. Could you do that? So instead of just talking on a 10,000 foot level, we could pull one apart. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got a handful of stocks here that myself I'm invested in and also um, a lot of our clients are. Um, the first is Roku. Roku is um, ticker ROKU. Um, I think a lot of us use Roku now uh, with the cord cutting uh, world that we live in. Um, it's a very easy to use platform for streaming. Um, it hosts all the different streaming platforms. So it's almost like an aggregator. And um, you know, if you look at sort of the way that Comcast is doing and a lot of the other sort of cable providers, uh, their business is dwindling and it's because of products like Roku. Um, so it kind of fits our criteria of like a growing market. Uh, we know streaming's growing. We know Netflix did really well. Um, and we like Roku because, uh, you know, we don't have to, um, you know, make a play that a specific one is gonna do, a, a specific streamer will do well. Mm. Um, so we like that growing market um, it's got a founder CEO that actually came from Netflix, uh, and invented the DVR. So a very smart founder, very innovative. Um, and they have this advertising platform. Um, of course there's the, uh, the streaming, which is an okay business, but they make a lot more money on the advertising. And we expect that to grow going forward. Um, especially cause a lot of businesses are tired of just dealing with Facebook and Google. Um, so Roku is kind of providing a, a third way to advertise in this connected TV environment. 
And then um, they're growing at almost 60% per year. Um, so it's impressive. Um, it still and seems also so crazy to me that they're growing that fast still, right? Because, but I, yeah, but I think back, like I've only right. had, I use uh, uh, Prime and I use their sticks, you know? Um, but it's like, I, I think I'm like, well, I've had those for five years. So everybody must have one, right? And it's crazy because they're so, they're still, it's still like, I don't know, probably mid adoption, you think? Um, it's in the US, yes. Um, but internationally, they have almost no presence. Really? Yeah. So that's, again, that's another driver of growth possibly for them. So um, yeah, that's the type of stock we look for because again, um, it's a growing, it's a growing market. So even if there's a competitor, they're still going to do well. Um, but at the same time, they're beating all the competitors. So um, that's, you know, that's the type of thing we're looking for. So I just want to back into this a little bit because I want people sure. to think about if they're listening to this. Um, you know, I think Roku, I think, okay, the little cable box, right? With the little remote, I see it at Best Buy. I'm like, okay. I'm like, it doesn't matter how many you sell those. At some point, they're going to not be selling that many of them. But as you said, you kind of peel the onion back. And the real moneymaker is not that little box. The real moneymaker is that they now control all the ad advertising that used to go to all the TV stations. Yep. That is now, you know, paper direct to consumer, uh, because and it's like it, they're basically stepped in as all the TV stations, right? And that's yep. where the real money comes from, and that's where the where the growth comes from. And so that's kind of the part where like you may think you know a company, but if you really probably went and read their investor relations page, like if you went to Roku, just googled Roku investor relations, you if you, you read, and this is one of the reasons you read the the earnings calls, right? And so yep. they'll tell you like. Oh, look at this ad revenue is up 300% this year, you know, unit sales is up 10% or 20% or whatever, which is still a great number, but it's not the driver that everyone thinks. So once every, if everybody in the house in the U S had a, had a Roku box, that's better for Roku than if they mm -hmm. only had half the people buy Roku boxes that, and they still had a big, they had half the people they could sell them to. Cause that doesn't make them the money that the, that the, the, the perpetual money. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of illustrates the point that we talked about um, investing is not easy because you do have to do this work. Um, mm -hmm. There's no way around it. Uh, I know a lot of people just kind of throw in based on, hey, I heard about this stock on CNBC or saw it on TikTok or whatever. Um, and of course, we all want something easy. Um, but you, the amount of information that's available on every company, it, it's amazing um, that it's out there for free. And like you said, you just peel back the layers of the onion, you read two or three conference calls, you can pretty much deter, it's easy to, to mark a company off. Yeah. Okay, if I read a couple of them, and it's like, well, this isn't interesting. Um, forget it. Um, and then when you when you finally get the position, um, all you got to do is every quarter read that call. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I talk about, um, if the business changes, that's when we get out. Um, that's how we determine sort of as, as we uh, research on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, that's the way that you kind of make that decision as you go along. So you mentioned something about with your financial planning, your goals. Um, how do you set goals? What, what is a recommendation for you or from you? I mean, for people that want to set goals uh, to achieve what they want out of their financial life, like what, what would be some advice for you? Cause people, you know, it's one thing to tell people to set goals, but if it's another way to like show them how, you know, here's a fish, but let me show you how to fish type of deal. How would you recommend doing that? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, 
I mean, you got to sit down and really think, what do I want out of life? I mean, do I need to, do I want to pay for my kid's education? Um, how do I want my retirement to look and, and those sort of things. Um, and it's easier the, the younger you are. So let's say, again, uh, as we've said with investing, um, start early um, and really think about what you want. And um, you also have to be really realistic about sort of the way that um, retirement is, looks, looks now. Um, we're all going to live a long, a long time after retirement uh, on average. And so um, I think you got to plan uh, a plan for many years after retirement. Uh, money for that, for healthcare and everything else. Um, but again, uh, I think the best advice is you got to start early. Um, and then at least you have a chance, you have time on your side um, to sort of, sort of um, shift the way that you invest, how much you save, you know, change those two variables in order to uh, change what, goal, you know, in order to fulfill the goals you want. And then sort of when you get on that path, um, you might actually find that, you know, the returns that you're getting changes sort of the, the um, universe of possibilities, right? Mm. Uh, and we find that a lot with our clients is, you know, they're with us for five years or more. Uh, wow, I didn't even imagine um, things that are possible now. I never imagined that possibility before. Um, and so uh, for us, we're always, in, we're always looking at investment returns and how can we incrementally increase those and really use the power of compounding um, to help achieve goals for our clients? Yeah, that's well said. I, um, you know, the, it's, it's, I think setting the goals obviously just automatically puts you in a different level uh, of where you were before setting goals, right? And then, um, like you said, during the execution, it's good sometimes to review the goals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's difficult for people sometimes. Um, it's not for everybody to manage this on their own. Yeah. Um, but we want everyone to, you know, our point is we're out in the public trying to educate people because we want a lot of people to get on this path of, um, you know, investing and finding a way to, you know, open the possibilities for your life going forward. Um, so if people aren't working with us, you know, we want people to work with somebody that can help them um, achieve these goals. And uh, we really want to push back against some of the narratives you hear out here out in the public um, domain for sort of financial journalism that uh, we really think are counterproductive. Yeah, well, they're in the business of clicks. So if you yeah. just remember that with the news, they're in the business of clicks. And so if the headline can, if they, they'll write three headlines and wait and see which ones are getting clicks and then delete the other two, so it's usually the sensationalism works out or the one with a little bit of intrigue or, or a, a, a slight to a, you know, maybe a fact, let's put it that way. Right. Sure. And so, well, that's a, uh, that's a good segue into the question I got to ask you now, which is who should come find you and where do they find you? Um, so you can find us at two places, www.leftbrainwm.com and www.leftbrainir.com. Um, we definitely work with retail investors, high net worth investors. So um, folks like that, that are looking for an advisor to work with, um, you know, find us at the WM site. And then uh, investment research is also out there uh, for people who want to manage their own money. And then also advisors who are looking for a, a way to um, in, improve their business and, and help their clients do well. So um, 
And for, uh, for everyone that's listening to this, um, we want to extend an offer uh, for Cody's listeners. Awesome. Thank um, you. Yeah, at, at, uh, at leftbrainir.com. Uh, anyone who signs up for our subscription services using the code TALKERS25, all caps, uh, receive 25% off their subscription for the lifetime of their subscription. Awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I love that because, you know, like you said, it's you become an aggravator of the sea of information. <laughs> You're the, you're the Roku of investor relations. There you go. That's it. That's true. <laughs> so that's awesome, man. I, Brian, I really appreciate you coming on with us. Uh, we'll put some links in the show notes as well uh, for those that want to get to it. And, uh, and, and thank you for coming on Money Talkers with me. Thanks so much, Cody. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Money Talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers Community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram at the Money Talkers for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing you can do to change your kids financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker